All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 22 as we continue our series through the book of Acts. The series title, not the sermon title, the series title is The Spirit and the Church. And we titled it that way because the book of Acts is really in large part about the work of the Spirit in and through the local church. And yes, it's about other things as well, but those are two dominant themes or one big complex dominant theme that we want to pay close attention to because a lot of us need an overhaul in our theology of the Holy Spirit. And it's not because you're not charismatic enough or it's, it's not because you're too charismatic. It's simply because most of us haven't given enough time to, and I, I would say most, not none of us have given enough time to a serious and experiential study of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So uh, that's one of the things that we're emphasizing as we work our way through this. And today we're going to dial in on this idea of the filling of the Holy Spirit. See, for a lot of people, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit shows up in some dramatic way or powerful way, uh, the Holy Spirit shows up, at least in their minds and in, maybe in their context, he shows up as a performer, right? The Holy Spirit shows up as, a, as a, almost like a celebrity who's gonna, like a magician, you know? He's like, uh, but not like David Blaine, like cool magic, uh, like David Copperfield, cheesy magic, like big, gross, like flashy kind of magic. And if you like that, that's cool too. The point being is that a lot of people look at the Holy Spirit and they put together these services that, that suggest that the Holy Spirit's big work is flashy and in a sense, entertaining. But as we work through scripture, we see that the Holy Spirit's work is not fundamentally to wow us, though he does oftentimes fill us with awe. The Holy Spirit does not entertain, though you may enjoy observing or participating in what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, when he is doing his dramatic, powerful work, isn't entertaining, he is edifying. He is edifying the saints. And this is something that we all need to be edified. That means to be built up, to be strengthened in our faith. And in particular, as it relates to the doctrine of the filling of the Holy Spirit, we mean this, the Holy Spirit fills us to equip us to persevere through trials and tribulations. Now, the filling of the Holy Spirit is intended to do more than that, but this is something that is often neglected. We don't tend to think about this. We think of the filling of the Holy Spirit, right? And we think of some powerful, dramatic public demonstration in front of a bunch of people, which does, has happened. But really, what I want us to see is this principle. The Holy Spirit fills us to equip us to persevere through our trials and tribulations. So we're gonna see this in verses one through 22. Now, before we get to the filling part, we're gonna read about this, Peter being filled with the Spirit. I want us to see something else that the Spirit does a lot. When the Spirit is at work, the Spirit oftentimes provokes and persuades. The Spirit provokes and persuades. Look at verses uh, one through three. 
in chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. I love that that's the word that they translated. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. The spirit has been at work. We've seen Peter, uh, by the grace and power of God, heal a man that was born crippled from birth. We see him then launch into a sermon where he's preaching in Holy Spirit power. And all of this demonstration of the spirit's activity has provoked a response from people. Now, who are those provoked? In verse 1, we see it's the priests, the captain, and the Sadducees. Now, in the temple there, the priests were the ones that were offering up those daily sacrifices in the morning and in the afternoon. Oh, but the captain they're talking about, the captain is like police chief. It's really what he is. There, there, were, there was a police force in the temple, and he was the captain. And the Sadducees, the Sadducees were a political group, really, a, a, a Jewish political group. Obviously, theology is always a part of it, uh, but they were those who really controlled the temple. Now, why are they annoyed? The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Well, why were they annoyed? Because of what they were saying and because of the influence that they were having. See, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. This was actually something debated, and in fact, it's pointed out in the Gospels. Sadducees don't believe that there is a future resurrection for the people of God. They reject it outright. This is why they tried to get Jesus to ask, answer those kinds of questions. They wanted to try to catch him in something that they could find fault with him over. But they didn't believe this at all, and so here they are preaching about the resurrection of the dead in Jesus, which means that as they're preaching, as they're teaching, they are starting with the resurrection of Jesus. Christ lived, he died, he rose from the dead, and that is the, the, the taste and the promise of the resurrection that is to come. And we see this unpacked in, in 1 Corinthians 15, for example. So they're frustrated because they're teaching a doctrine that they don't like, that they don't agree with, but it's not just that. The Sadducees' influence is being challenged by these preachers. The Sadducees, these educated people, who view teachers as being those who should be highly educated, highly trained. They're supposed to be the people that can answer all of the questions, but here are two uneducated people creating a stir, demonstrating influence. People are believing. People are following them. So they are annoyed, and their response after being provoked by this is to have Peter and John arrested. It says they were arrested, thrown into jail overnight. It's because they couldn't get to uh, a trial right away, right? So the, uh, the, the court has been closed for the afternoon, so they're going to spend the night in jail. And we don't really have any information about what it was like in there. And we're going to see other times. We're going to see exactly what's happening in the prison as God's people are arrested. But here, we just know that they were arrested and held overnight. And this is a first, in the book of Acts, right, in, in, in the history uh, since Christ's resurrection, it's the first time we see Christians being arrested for preaching the gospel. The book of Acts is very much a book of firsts, sort of like Genesis means beginning, and there's a lot of beginnings and firsts in there. Acts as well, there are a lot of firsts. We have the first arrest, we have the first martyr, and so forth. 
So here we have these people who are arrested. They, they've been doing God's work. The Spirit has been demonstrating his power, and the response is persecution. When the Spirit is at work, some will be provoked to resist. So there's provocation on the one hand. Before we get to the filling, the Spirit has provoked some people while persuading others. Look at verse 4, and you see the persuasion. It says, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. That's a lot of people, and that's the men, 5,000. Estimates are uh, before the stoning of Stephen that uh, the church in this area amounted to about 20,000 people. So you can see the influence, you can see they, they view these, the world, the, the Jewish leadership, they're viewing these Christians as a sect, a heretical offshoot of Judaism, creating a stir and generating a following. But people were believing, truly believing. Now, why were they persuaded? What led them to believe? Because they saw a miracle? Or because they heard the word? The scripture tells us that they heard the word. They heard it. You know, people see miracles. People see a demonstration of God's power. And there's always an objection. There's always a question. And, and we'll talk about that. That's, that's, that, that's okay, right? We, we understand that people are going to look for an explanation that makes sense to them in their worldview. It's not a miracle that convinces somebody to believe in Jesus. It is the word of God attended by the work of the spirit that leads people to believe, they heard the gospel and they trusted in Christ. They were changed as they listened to these men preach. And the church grew quickly. The church is going to grow quickly. And let me just say this. It is not always numerical growth that is a consequence of the Spirit's work. Some places grow in great number without the Holy Spirit or without the gospel being preached at all. It doesn't take the Holy Spirit to gather a bunch of people together and get them excited. It also isn't true that if the Spirit is really at work, you will have numeric growth because sometimes the Spirit is at work doing other things before there are conversions or before there is that kind of a growth. The Spirit is at work and accomplishes His will in His timing and in His way. And this is what we want to be looking for as we read the book of Acts. What is the Spirit doing? In the beginning of the book of Acts, there's going to be a lot of growth because the church is being established for the first time, this New Testament church. When the Spirit is at work, there is always going to be provocation and persuasion. Right? There's always going to be some level of resistance, opposition to what's happening, and there's also going to be people that are sanctified and built up edified or people that are being reached with the gospel. There's going to be provocation and persuasion. It means that whenever the spirit is at work, there's going to be effective preaching and intensifying persecution. That's normal when the spirit goes to work. What this means, in one sense anyways, is that the Holy Spirit doing the work that only he can do does not equal success in the ways that we typically measure it. It doesn't equal favor with the world. It doesn't, it doesn't equal a comfortable, pleasant life because Peter and John were arrested 
and thrown in the jail and the persecution will only intensify from this point on. People are going to lose their lives. When the Holy Spirit is at work, it doesn't mean success. It sometimes means arrest. But it is always, always God's plan to strengthen and to build his church. That is, strengthen and build his people. So, the Spirit is at work provoking some, persuading others, and now we get to the trial the next day in which we get to talk a little bit about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. On the next day, there are rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So the court convenes, and we have rulers, elders, and scribes. These are the people that make up the Sanhedrin, all right? Uh, the, the, the Sanhedrin was in charge of things, right? And so the rulers were those that had authority. Uh, the elders were the ones that offered counsel. And the scribes were the theologians, right? The, the, the doctrinally precise, precise people that were constantly writing so the court convenes and the court is ruled by this Sanhedrin, that 71 members, high priest is sort of big dog in that group. And the question is asked at this gathering. And the question is what? How do you do it? Verse 7, when they had them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? They want to know what's going on. They have questions. They have concerns. They certainly have doubts. They don't know really what to make of this. The question is, how do you do it? It's actually a good question. It's not a bad question. How are you doing that? How do you get that guy that was crippled, the guy that couldn't walk? I mean, from, from birth, he was disabled. And now, and we all know that guy, but now we see him walking around. How did you, how did you do it? In fact, this is something that the world frequently does. The world will oftentimes ask the church or ask Christians, how how are you doing that? And sometimes, like in this case, it would be a, a miracle that is dramatic. And other times, and we even see this in, in scripture and in the early church writings, like people want to know, like, how do you love each other the way that you do? Like you, like you're all so different. You come from these different places and yet you're all one. You're all unified and you actually love each other. How do you do that? Or maybe you've experienced this kind of a question in your own life from somebody who's not a Christian watching you. One of the common questions that I hear from the world addressed to Christians who are walking with the Lord and filled with the Spirit, the question is, how can you possibly forgive him? How could you ever forgive her? In other words, they see that you have been wronged in some way, in some dramatic fashion, and their only conception, the only conception in their mind is like, okay, I would write that person off and never talk to them again, or I would destroy them. But you forgave them, you extended kindness to them. How, how do you do that? We've even seen this in, in, in court trials where the family members of murder victims will stand up and extend forgiveness, and the world marvels or wonders they want to know, how do you do that? How is this possible? And the answer that Peter gives is helpful for us. 
He says, it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I really like reading Peter in the book of Acts. He still makes some mistakes along the way, but man, he is dialed in on Jesus. How is it that this happened. Well, he's saying, well, listen, uh, it was Jesus. It was in the name of Jesus. It was by the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, that this man walks. Make no mistakes about it. The one that you hated, the one that you betrayed, the one that you railroaded, the one that you tortured, the one that you crucified, the one that you killed, the one whom God raised from the dead, he's the one. He gets all the glory. Peter's like, I'm a fisherman. I talk a lot. Peter's the one, Peter's the one with, that, that has been given this gift and this opportunity to speak on God's behalf, but it is God who does the work. He doesn't brag on himself. He doesn't think much of himself. See what's happening? Really what's happening here is Peter is speaking. Peter is emboldened because Peter, in this moment, is filled with the Spirit. That's not conjecture, right? You see that if you're reading along. Because what does it say in verse 8? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said. Peter speaks, but he's speaking here because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. There is with the filling of the Holy Spirit. You know what filling is? We're going to come back to filling again a few times as we go through this book. But to be filled with the Spirit is to be influenced by the Spirit in greater measure, right? It's to be empowered and to be effective for God. That's what's happening. When you're filled with the Spirit, you are empowered, influenced, controlled, right? You are led, you are effective. In fact, it's very much of the time, very much of the time, it's, it's associated with verbal communication, preaching, teaching, evangelism. Like if it, we already read it in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. They were all filled with the Spirit, and what did they do? They spoke in tongues. They spoke in tongues, known earthly languages that other people from other cultures could hear and understand. They were testifying to the grace and the greatness of God. Filled with the Spirit, and they spoke in chapter 13, verse 9. Paul is filled with the Spirit, and words start to fly. And you know what happens? He's calling out a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, and he's calling him out for his ungodliness, his heresy, his wicked influence. In chapter 13, verse 52, we read that the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy. The filling of the Holy Spirit is an influence upon us. It means that we are now being influenced by and controlled by God the Holy Spirit, not in a robotic way, but in a supernatural, spiritual way. 
He is opening our eyes to see and to understand. He is softening our hearts so that we love and have compassion. He is giving us boldness to stand strong in the face of opposition. The influence of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, involves things like your feelings. You feel different. You feel for people. You have affection for people, concern, love. You love righteousness and you begin to hate sin all the more. And by the way, people who really hate sin, I mean people who really hate sin, hate their own sin more than they hate your sin. People who really hate sin, the godly who hate sin, they hate sin and evil and unrighteousness, but they are most concerned about their own. It doesn't mean that they're silent about sins in general, but they are never proud. They are always humble. And that is an aspect of being filled with the Spirit, is that you have these, these affections, these feelings, and you're not just feeling, you are acting out, right? You are working, you are doing, you are given courage, you are strengthened to persevere in the face of obstacles of every conceivable kind. Peter was filled with the Spirit. He was filled to speak. And look at his words. What do you notice about his words? Rulers and the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead... By him, this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. There is salvation in no one else. Peter is filled with the Spirit and he begins to speak and preach and his words are what? I would say there are two things. They are Christocentric and they're confrontational. There's a lot to say. He could adjust he could address the, 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 the political situation in the temple that isn't fair. It's obviously unfair. There's some, lots of corruption there. And he, it's a fine thing to do. It's a good thing to do. But that's not what he does. When he's filled with the Spirit, he goes straight to the matter of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He goes straight to Jesus, the only one in whom we can be saved. His words are Christocentric. Like Paul, he preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all he's really interested in, right? To overstate it. It's, it's all he knows to overstate it. That's what he's all about. He preaches Christ. It's a Christocentric, but it's also confrontational. He's not just saying like, well, you know, I got this cool thing. You know, you might want to try it, might not want to try it. It's no big deal. Like, hey, it works for me. It might not work for you. Like, whatever. No pressure. No pressure. I'm not trying to guilt trip you. You know, sometimes we have overreacted to the, to the obnoxious hellfire and brimstone preacher that does the chicken walk as he yells at people and tells them they're going to hell. Like we, we overreact to that, to being so soft in our presentation of the gospel that we really don't want to mention things like guilt, death, or hell. In fact, some popular preachers and writers suggest that we shouldn't do that at all. Just accentuate the positives. But he doesn't do that. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches a Christocentric message that is confronting his hearers. Again, we saw this last week. They have to know their guilt. We have to know our guilt in order to experience deliverance from our guilt. We have to understand and embrace the bad news before the good news of Jesus Christ makes any sense or is the least bit interesting. 
Peter is filled to speak, filled with the Spirit, Christocentric, confrontational. See, when we're filled with the Spirit, words tend to happen. Words emerge with power because we are a very word-oriented faith, aren't we? This is a word-oriented religion in that sense. We have a book, a book made up of 66 books. If I was smart, I would have figured out how many words are in the book, then I could have played with that. Right. Filled with words, and every one of these words in every one of these books that is bound by leather right here is inspired of God and useful for our edification, for our growth, for our rebuke, for our correction, that we might strengthen and become the people that we're supposed to be. We're filled to speak words. We have the word of God. We speak the word of God. We sing the word of God. It's what makes us. There is no sense in which we can be Christians and then divorce ourselves from the Holy Spirit or the Holy Bible. There's no sense in which you can be a practical Christian and divorce yourself from those things. We can disagree on what this book means. We sometimes do. We oftentimes do. Let's be honest. We oftentimes disagree. But what we all should be agreeing on is that this is the word of God and it is our responsibility and privilege to seek to understand it, to rightly apply it, and then to share it with every living creature on earth. The Holy Spirit fills us and one of the things that happens is we are moved to speak or sing. I know a lot of you know this, but check out Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Let's just note something here. Be filled with the Spirit. In the one sense, like there is, there is a command here, but to be filled means that there's a sense in which we are receiving this. There's something that is happening to us. The Spirit fills us. It isn't fill yourself up with the Spirit, but there's a command to be filled with the Spirit. So while the filling of the Holy Spirit is the work of the Spirit, influencing us, strengthening us, moving us, empowering us, it is something in which we are active. We are not passive. A lot like sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we become more like Jesus, right? Or to be, have a bigger picture, uh, sanctification is the process where we are changed in our spirit and in our character. We become more godly as the image of God that has been wrecked in us because of our sin is being restored by his grace. It's this progressive maturing and development of our person, sanctification. That's the work of God, but it is something that we are active in. We read the word and engage in all the means of grace, prayer, singing, corporate worship, uh, the sacraments. We, we, we engage in all of those things and God uses them to grow us. And we're called to sanctify Jesus in our hearts, right? Establish him as first. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 to abstain from sexual immorality and that's equated with sanctifying ourselves. 
Like sanctify yourself, abstain from all forms of sexual immorality. We're supposed to kill sin and live under righteousness. So sanctification is the work of the spirit that changes us, but we're active in our doing, believing, being. Well, it's very similar with to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's something that the spirit does, but we are active in it. So do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, that's probably not what most people think of when they think of being filled with the Spirit. You're being filled with the Spirit, man. I want tongues, flames of fire, I want Christian rock bands, lasers, hazers, smoke show. I want the whole thing. I want the entertainment. I want the power. I don't want to have to be nice to people. That's not like be filled with the spirit and hold hands and sing. That sounds awful, right? Maybe, maybe it sounds awful to you. That's what it says, right? Be filled with the, be filled with the spirit, addressing one another. This is what it looks like. This is what Paul says it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. You're likely to see it when you're gathered together. You're likely to see it when you're gathered for worship. You're likely to hear it. We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a lot, there's some debate about exactly what each of these words means, but most scholars seem to indicate it simply is pointing out the variety of songs that the church is called to sing when we gather together. Psalms, you know what those are. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're called to come together and to sing, right? But not just sing. Not just vocalize words. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's the kind of singing Yes, the voice is important. It's really important. But the voice carries no weight if it's not coming from the heart. To be filled with the Spirit looks like addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So note that, that there is a horizontal aspect to corporate worship. We were just talking about this at a worship leaders uh, gathering. We, we tend to rightly think about worship as vertical, Right? It is a service in that God extends grace to us. It is vertical in that, that we are proclaiming his excellencies, ascribing worth and honor to God. Worship is not about you. It's not about me. It is about God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. If we're gonna target anyone in worship, we don't target the believer. We don't target the lost. We target the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we target in worship. And yet... The reading of scripture, the preaching of scripture, the singing of scripture, there is a very horizontal aspect to it. We exhort one another. We don't preach at Jesus. We preach to each other. We sing to God, but we also sing to each other. This is what it looks like to be filled with the spirit. Singing together, giving thanks always and for everything, having a posture of gratitude in our lives. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. 
to be thankful, to be humble, to be content with what you have, knowing that you deserve nothing. I mean, how convicting, how, conf- how confrontational does Scripture have to get with me, right, as I'm reading this? I should be content with what I have because every good thing I have in my life is a gift given to me by God. And if there's any sense in which we want to say like, well, I earned that, I did that, all of that's based on your privileged opportunity of being born where you were with the gifts that you have been given. All of that goes back to God. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not a general, it's not a general generic kind of thankfulness. It is thankfulness to God the Father through Jesus Christ. We know that every good gift that we have is not just God indiscriminately throwing gifts. He specifically gives you the good things in your life because you are his son now adopted through Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus, you would not have the gifts that you have, the opportunities that you have. In fact, any good thing in your life while still a gift of common grace, would only serve to condemn you because you don't receive it with thankfulness or in faith. Oh, and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, we think filling with the Holy Spirit, we think of power. We think of passion. We don't think of submitting to one another. Showing deference to one another, putting each other first. Where do we learn that? We learn that in Jesus, right? Even the Spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't make much of himself, does he? He makes a whole lot of Jesus. Always pushing the person and the work of Christ out in front for everyone to see. Peter is filled with the Spirit and he speaks. And we, when we are filled with the Spirit, we will speak. We're not all going to preach epic sermons like Peter, but we will speak. We will speak the truth. We will speak of Christ. We may be confrontational. We will be encouraging each other. We will be engaging in evangelism and in edification. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Fills us to do these things. And all of this just reminds me. Now, it didn't remind me. God, God showed me this for the first time this week. Didn't remind me. And it was that you're more likely to hear the filling of the Holy Spirit before you see it. Because it's demonstrated by words, sometimes songs. And with this filling and words comes boldness or courage. We see this in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, how confusing for them. These common men being so bold, so courageous. Where, who, who are they? Where do they get off taking this kind of a posture? But seeing it, they were astonished. Now, if, if, if these people were evaluating themselves based on their social standing, uh, based on, their, on their, maybe their, competence, their competencies as evaluated by the world, and then especially in comparison to the people that are surrounding them, they would have bowed out and said, yeah, pff, um, that's not for me. I don't have anything to offer. And they would be right in part. 
but they're not on their own. They stand there in Jesus Christ, united to him, filled with the spirit, so they have boldness, they have courage. This means that when you're filled with the spirit, you are much more able to face your fears, to face your enemies, to face the unknown that challenges us so much, and to face the known, the certainties. My father is dying. We're all dying. My father has Huntington's disease. It runs in my family, kills everybody on my dad's side. And I remember when he found out that he had Huntington's disease and, uh, and we, we knew this was a possibility. So it showed up and it showed up late in his life, which is uncommon for our family. And I said, how do you feel about it? And he's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm pretty frustrated by it. I'm pretty discouraged by it. I'm pretty depressed by it. So he starts going to these support groups, right? These Huntington disease support groups. And, uh, and he goes there and he hears from all these people. And so many of these people were saying things that frustrated him, provoked him. He'd come home, I'm like, how'd it go? And he's like, I don't like it. I'm like, why don't you like it? And he goes, because when I go there, these dummies are like, well, God gave it to me for a reason. God's gonna do something good in me through all of this. Like they, they act as if they have courage in the face of this thing, which means generally what it means is you've got 10 years that are manageable with medicine and then 10 years where you're, you're just in utter darkness being fed through a tube until you die. He's like, I don't like it. God has a purpose. It's what everybody said, God has a purpose in this. And then my dad became a Christian. And I remember one of the first things I wanted to ask him a few weeks in, I go, how are you, think, how are you feeling about Huntington's disease? And everything. And he goes, God has a purpose. I know it. I believe that. And it changed him. So you have this boldness where you can face your fears, the unknown, the known. And because of this, the church perseveres. Now, I got to make quick work of some of this here. Um, I want us to note how the world is reacting here before we, we move on. The, the, the world is responding in this courtroom setting, right? The world is responding to all of this. And essentially, they cannot deny what is happening because everybody's seen it. They can't, they, they can't just make it go away. So what they try to do is they try to slow it down. They don't know that it's God at work. They don't believe that, but something's happening. They can't stop it. They can't deny it. So let's try to slow it down. And you can read how this plays out starting in uh, verse 14 and 15. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what are we going to do with these men? That's how they said, what are we going to do with these men? Uh, for uh, that uh, notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Good luck. Good luck. Okay, so they're going to say like, all right, listen, uh, just don't talk about this anymore and definitely don't mention the name of Jesus. So they, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, what is right in the sight of God to listen to you or rather, rather than to God? You must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of all the people. They were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. They cannot stop it. They try to slow it. This is what the world does. 
when the work of God, the work of the Spirit is evident, they don't have an answer for it. They come up with alternative theories. They try to shut it down. They try to slow it down. They try to make us quiet. And what does the church do? The church perseveres. The church continues. The church says, no, I'm, I'm going to keep saying what I'm saying. I'm going to keep preaching what I'm preaching. I'm going to keep doing what God has called us to do because God has called us to do that. I can't listen to you and ignore God. It doesn't work. Now, we do wind up listening to the world and, and ignoring God at times, right? That does happen. But when you're filled with the Spirit, you are influenced and made sensitive to the Word of God, just as these brothers were. So the Holy Spirit fills us to equip us to persevere through trials and tribulations. It does more than that, but that's one of the things that's happening here. Peter and John faced trial and tribulation, and they persevered through it, through arrest, accusations, threats, and eventual death. They persevere by the power of the Holy Spirit. So... As we're looking at this, I always want us to go, okay, what does this mean for us today? If to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be empowered and effective, it's to, if it's to be influenced by the Spirit of God, what does that look like? And the, the real way to begin to wrestle with that is to ask, well, where is the church today? Where is the church? Not, I don't mean that as if there is one big church, but I just mean... Where are we as Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians? Where are we in our churches? What's our posture toward the culture, towards the world? Are we preaching Christocentric, confrontational messages? Welcoming everyone who is willing to come into the kingdom, who are willing to believe? Are we obeying God or are we obeying man? And since filling really is, in this context, an individual thing, right? People are individually filled. Sometimes individuals are filled in a collective sense when they're gathered together. Where are we? Or maybe where are you? Because if what I'm seeing is true, right? The Holy Spirit fills us. Think of it this way. The Holy Spirit fills me to equip me to persevere through my trials and tribulations. If that's true, then what are my trials and tribulations? What am I going through? What am I facing? What pain, insecurity, questions, concerns, like what opposition, what attacks? What am I facing? What are you staring at? And what are you called to do? Being a Christian, <laughs> some of you know this well, and I think we experience it at certain times in our lives, maybe for certain seasons. Being a Christian uh, is hard. Now, it's awesome. It's great. And uh, oftentimes it's, it's beautiful, but it's hard. And there are times in our lives when being a Christian is particularly hard. And those times when being a Christian is particularly hard oftentimes is because we are facing either obstacles from outside of ourselves or corruptions and sins inside of ourselves. And what we really need is the work of the Spirit to break us over our sins, to strengthen us in response to sin, to move us to be a people who willingly sing for joy 
and express gratitude with contentment as we submit to one another. What are you facing? Articulate it in your mind. What is weighing you down? What is hurting you? What is the challenge you face right now that you are on the verge of just giving into or accepting? You need the work of the Spirit of God in your life. I need the filling of the Holy Spirit. So what do we do? We just wait. Just going to wait. That's not the idea at all, is it? If what we see in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21 is true, then we need to be with each other. You want to be filled with the Spirit? You better be connected to God's people because that tends to be the environment in which the filling of the Spirit takes place. Don't believe me? Check it out. Start reading about all the cases in the Bible where people are filled with the Spirit or spend time meditating on Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. You can't, it's not that it can't, you are unlikely to experience the, this helpful, reviving, filling work of the Spirit all alone. You find it in the context of God's people or the church as you are exercising faith and seeking to obey the very commands of God even though you're doing it half-heartedly and you feel like a hypocrite because you don't really want to do it, but you're doing the right thing, right, at least externally, and you think, well, God doesn't want that. He wants my heart right. But how does he get your heart? Oftentimes the heart is impacted as we are exercising ourselves, even if feeble, even if feebly. And pray, ask God for the help that you need. Ask God for the filling that you need. Ask God, the Holy Spirit, to do what only he can do. Let me close with this. We read it earlier. This is from the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of prayers based on the writings of the Puritans that I would encourage everyone to get if you haven't already. We read a responsive reading from it earlier, the Spirit of Jesus. Just listen to some of it. Here is our prayer to be filled. Lord Jesus Christ, fill me with thy Spirit that I may be occupied with his presence I am blind, send him to make me see dark. Let him say, let there be light. May he give me faith to behold my name engraven in thy hand, my soul and body redeemed by thy blood, my sinfulness covered by the life of pure obedience. Replenish me by his revealing grace that I may realize my indissoluble union with thee, that I may know that thou hast espoused me to thyself forever in righteousness, love, mercy, faithfulness, that I am one with thee as a branch with its stock, as a building with its foundation. May his comforts cheer me in my sorrows, his strength sustain me in my trials, his blessings revive me in my weariness, his presence render me a fruitful tree of holiness, his might establish me in peace and joy. His incitements make me ceaseless in prayer. His animation kindle in me undying devotion. Send him as the searcher of my heart to show me more of my corruptions and helplessness that I may flee to thee, cling to thee, rest on thee as the beginning and the end of my salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your grace and we seek it. We need your reviving influence. We need the filling of the Spirit. We know that you are the one that has made us alive spiritually 
And you are the one who continues to grow us, sanctify us and animate us. So God, overcome our weariness, weakness and waywardness. Accomplish your will. In Jesus' name, amen.